Well, it is uh, great uh, to be uh, among you again um, and presenting to you from uh, God's Word. It is God's Word, so how about we turn to God in prayer and ask for his help, shall we? Now, Father, we are so grateful that you are our God, that we can depend upon you, that you are the Saviour of all men, especially those who believe. We thank you for our well-being now. We thank you for giving us ears to hear your word. And we thank you especially that you have shined your light into our dark world and enabled us to see it. We beg that you would please give that light and ability to see to all around us as well, that through the darkness of these last days, they may come into your glorious light and find life. Please be with us today as we tackle this topic and enable us to reflect rightly upon your word. Teach us, we pray, and enable us by faith and repentance to live all the more for you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the question we are looking at today is, uh, where is God in the bushfires? I don't need to tell you, but I will tell you anyway, that Australia over the last few weeks has been suffering devastating loss. Millions of hectares have been burned up. Uh, Nearly 2,000 homes at last count uh, have been lost, many others damaged. Uh, 24 deaths that I know of so far. Um, Three of them are fireys. Millions of animals are estimated uh, to have died. And we're still counting because it's not over yet. This is an ongoing issue for us. The fires, according to most, have been unprecedented, devastating, catastrophic. Lots of people have made good argument for it being a result of man-made climate change. But I think it still begs the question, particularly for believers, what about God? Where is God in all this? Why would he allow it? Of course, this question is just part of a bigger question uh, that is universal and touches all people at all time. Where is God when bad things happen? Where is God when people suffer? You might not know it uh, watching the local news of late, but there is a lot still going on around the world, not just the bushfires. There's still the ongoing issue of mayhem in Iraq and Iran, apparently a couple of days ago, nearly, uh, we may see the beginning of World War Three as a result of what took place in Iran. Uh, but there are still millions starving to death in Yemen uh, and uh, in North Africa. The, the problems in Syria haven't stopped. There are still ongoing fighting. So many has still displaced. There's still widespread ruin there. Bad things happen all the time. It's not just natural disasters and wars... But there's sickness and heartbreak and crime and inhumanity and evil that floods our news programs every day of every year. I came across this story just a little while ago. Um, In 1992, nine-year-old Katie Beers was abducted by a family friend and held captive in a dungeon for 17 days. He chained her by the neck, locked her in a wooden box and abused her. But thankfully, 17 days later, she was rescued. Now, the sad reality is that we're actually used to hearing such stories. 
and it doesn't devastate us any near as much. Suffering, um, even to this kind of scale, is sadly normal and everyday reality. Suffering is normal for humans in general. I mean, as many theologians have often said, if you haven't suffered, then it's probably because you haven't lived long enough. Isn't that true? The older we get, the more we realise that this is a truth. So the question, where is God and why would God allow suffering, is actually not a flippant or trivial question. It's extremely relevant and demands an answer. And actually you will discover that the Bible addresses this issue numerous times because it is quite a complex answer that it gives. As a Christian who believes that God is good and that he is sovereign, it is probably one of the hardest questions that we will face, not so much intellectually, but much more when we personally experience it. Then we really ask, where are you, God? And why, God? Why me? For the non-believer, of course, it's proof that God doesn't exist. Uh, my cousin confronted me uh, once with this at a party. Uh, I think it was the 21st, uh, one of my other cousins. And he said to me, you believe that God is uh, good and all-powerful. Then he said, why is suffering still part of our world? Either he is good and not all-powerful, so he can't do anything about it, or he's all-powerful but he's not good, and so he doesn't want to do anything about it. But either way, it proves that the all-good, all-powerful God that you believe in doesn't really exist. Sounds like a knockdown argument. But before we look at what the Bible has to actually say to these kinds of things, what I want to do is quickly point out that the problem of suffering and evil in our world, I think, is actually an even bigger problem for the atheist. Because for the atheist, things can't be unjust or wrong or evil because there really is no basis to make such a judgment call. All there is is evolutionary process and chance. Things happen because they happen because they happen because they happen. They don't. They just happen by chance. There's no good. There's no bad. It just is events that take place. Um, I, you, we may cause or contribute to certain things happening, but it's all just random in the end because there's no meaning, there's no purpose, no reason to call something good or bad or to feel a particular way about anything. Your feelings don't make sense in actual reality, but even the atheists, you see, finds it hard to suggest that there is nothing wrong with starting a bushfire or looting when people vacate their homes. They find it hard not to react to evil and suffering that exists in our world. They find it hard not to judge it as being evil, even though they have no basis to make such a judgment in the first place. When it comes to real-life situations, what can the atheist say to the one who has actually suffered loss during the bushfires or through any event of life? Bad luck? And that's the best they can say, really, but that doesn't really cut it to the person who's suffering. In atheism, there's no meaning to anything. There's no hope. It's all just random. And so what you're going through really is just bad luck. Atheism actually has nothing useful to say to the problem of suffering and to the one going through it. And the famous academic C.S. Lewis 
found this to be the major problem that he had while he was an atheist. And that's why it was one of the reasons that he converted. Okay, what does the Bible have to say? Where is God in the bushfire? Why does God allow such suffering and evil to take place in our worlds? Now, unfortunately what I'm going to do is skate over a lot of what the Bible says. I'm going to try to cover a lot of... um, uh, So what I'm going to do is refer to passages. I hope you write them down and I pray that you'll read them later and work out whether I'm doing justice to the text or not because in the end what you need to do is put your trust in God and his word, not in me who's uh, giving you uh, this talk. All right, let's begin by looking back at the reason that suffering came into the world in the first place. And right from the start of the Bible, if we turn back to the book of Genesis, uh, God tells us that suffering exists in our world because of mankind's deliberate revolt against his good order in creation. Um, Way back in Genesis 3, what we see is that God created a good world. Everything was good, very good, but mankind sought independence from the creator, that is, he deliberately rebelled and revolted against him by not following his word, but trying to follow the words of another. What we see in that chapter, in Genesis chapter 3, really, is a microcosm of what goes on in each and every single human being's heart ever since. God is giving us a glimpse into our own hearts Because each of us has made the same statement to God. I don't want you to be God over me. I want to call the shots in my life. I want to live my life my way. In other words, I want to be God of me, not you. When we sin against God and when Adam and Eve sinned against God, that's when things turn pear-shaped. In Genesis 3, suffering and death is the just judgment of God against our sin. Our world, we ourselves, our relationships are all radically damaged because of our sin and God's judgment on our sin. So the Bible tells us that suffering exists in the world because of sin. That's the first thing. Now, I think... We could all deal with suffering existing in this, in this way and even being the hand of God in the world. I think we could cope with it a lot more if it worked out according to the principle of karma. That is, where bad things happen to bad people and where suffering was proportional to how bad you are. But the reality is that suffering is just not fair. And seems very indiscriminate. Uh, There is no direct correlation between how bad you are and the amount that you have to suffer in life. And the Bible actually heavily criticises those who think that that is the case. The whole book of Job, which I believe um, you had a look at recently, is that right? Um, uh, Sees Job suffer major tragedy after major tragedy. Uh, He loses his family. He loses his property. uh, He loses his own health. And it's so freaky, uh, the onslaught against Job, that even his closest friends think that Job must have really ticked off God in a big way for God to pummel into him in the way that he did because it just seemed to be on top of each other. What have you done, Job, that God would treat you this way? But the Bible insists that Job was an innocent sufferer. 
And worse, his friends were not friends at all and radically wrong to think that the way they were. Suffering is not proportional to our sin. In John chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples see a man who was born blind. And you may remember the question that the disciples asked the Lord, uh, who sinned, they said, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? But Jesus said to them, neither. Nor he, nor his parents sinned. The disciples' thinking was actually wrong. In Luke 13, verses 1 to 5, which we'll look at in a little bit later, it makes the same point. And there's plenty of other places in the Bible uh, that we could turn to at this point. But it's very important that we understand that suffering tells us nothing about how bad someone is, nor what God thinks of them, either good or bad. Uh, We only have to think of Jesus to prove that point. Uh, The Lord Jesus suffered incredibly, we're told, and he never did a thing wrong. And we know that God was well pleased with him and dearly loved him uh, more than anyone. Suffering is not proportional to how good or bad uh, we would have been. Well, the question is often asked, why doesn't God do anything about evil and suffering in in the world? And actually... um, uh, I wanted to say to my cousin, and I did try to, to say this to him, but he kept on shrugging his shoulders and then eventually walked away. But I started, but I said to him, well, the Bible actually does have an answer for you, if you care to listen. And its answer is that he has done something and he will do something. God has done something about it. God came into our world in the person of Jesus. And what is noteworthy and what everyone in in recorded history picks up on this particular fact that took place in Jesus' life is that he performed many miracles, healing miracles, all of which were designed to undo the suffering that existed in people's lives. He healed the blind, the deaf, the lame, all kinds of diseases, mental illness and even spiritual afflictions. And he even raised the dead. The huge number of miracles that Jesus did, we're told in John's Gospel, are all signs. Signs of what? Signs pointing to the great message of God for the world. And God's message is this, that in Jesus, he came to undo the effects of sin. That Jesus came to destroy suffering and death in our world. How did he do this? Well, each of the Gospels goes on to tell how Jesus uh, suffered and died on the cross to bring about God's plan to make a brand new world that is pain-free and uh, death-free. Jesus suffered to end suffering. Jesus died to put death to death. The very least that we can say is that God is not totally aloof from our pain and suffering. He's not a million miles away. He came right down into the very thick of it, into our harsh existence, and suffered, not just a little bit, but to the extremes. God knows our pains and heartaches far better than we often realise. He is not cold and removed from our pains. He's not just sitting up there on his throne, indifferent to all that is going on. He actually got off his throne, came down to earth, humbled himself, lived amongst us, 
experienced our pain and suffered the extreme on the cross. And he did it so that ultimately we could live a pain-free existence forever. And the way he did this was by taking the punishment that you and I deserved for our rebellion against God so that we wouldn't have to cop it ourselves. Jesus copped hell so that we wouldn't have to cop it. He suffered it instead of us, for us. He swapped places uh, with us. When we imagine Jesus hanging on the cross before all the world, and if you close your eyes, I think you can picture that hill of Calvary with Jesus hanging on the cross. Well, when you picture it, you should be picturing yourself hanging there. But what we do see, and thankfully what we do see, is Jesus hanging there instead of me. It should have been me dying for my sin. But thank God it's Jesus dying for me instead of me. But not only that, three days later Jesus rose from the dead to kick off the brand new existence in which suffering and pain and death will be done away with. And the promise of the Bible is that Jesus will one day come back again and raise us into this brand new world of his creation. Let me read to you, um, and I think I've got this on the screen. Is that it? Yes, Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 to 5. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down. For this, what I tell you is trustworthy and true. Why doesn't God do something about suffering? The Bible's answer is that God has done something about it in Jesus and one day he will do away with it all together. One day there will be no bushfires to threaten our homes or loss of life or anything. The natural question uh, that follows is, so why doesn't God simply do away with suffering now? Why wait? And the answer that the Bible would give us is that, well, God has a good purpose for it all. So let's turn to Luke chapter 13. And read that passage, Luke 13, verses 1 to 5. About this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee and they were offering sacrifices at the the temple. Do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee? Jesus, um, is that? Okay. Okay. Is that why they suffered? Uh, Not at all. And you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. And what about the 18 people who died when the tower in Siloam uh, fell on them? Were they, were sinners uh, in Jerusalem? No. And I tell you again that unless you repent, you will perish too. Now, it clearly makes the point that we've already made that when bad things happen to people, uh, that it says nothing about uh, how bad those people were. Uh, They are no worse than anyone else, Jesus says. But Jesus says that when bad things happen, like the bushfires, 
They are God's warning bell, a wake-up call to all of us that things are not right in our world. And things are not right in our world because things are not right between us and God. Now, I wish I did have a long time to delve into Romans 1, but I'm going to fly through this uh, passage in Romans 1 because I think Romans 1 uh, shows us more on uh, a little bit more on how God uses suffering and evil for his good purposes uh, that he has for us. Um, uh, basically, what Romans 1 verses 18 to the end of the chapter are pointing out is that uh, there is sin in the world. We wanted self-rule, independence from God. I want to live my life my way uh, uh, and do what I want, when I want, how I want. And God says at this point, OK, go for it. See what it's like. And what we see in Romans 1 is the strife, the conflict, damage, pain, suffering that we inflict on each other and ourselves by going our own way. And God, God's way of helping us in these particular times is to help us to see what it's like when we go our own way. And what we need to do, therefore, is to turn around and go the other way. God calls this repentance, or the Bible regularly calls this repentance, but it's just saying that you're going the wrong way and what you need to do is what we always used to say out of Blacktown where I was going up is chuck a yui, do a U-turn, chuck a yui, go back the other way, go back to God. You're going the wrong way and live for him. As Jesus says, unless you repent, you too will all perish. Now, It might sound a bit insensitive, but it's an important truth that our present sufferings on this earth are nothing in comparison to the horrors of hell. But Jesus is telling us that tragedies in life are God's warning bells going off to turn us around. Otherwise, you have to realise that you are speeding. You are going full on into a big Mack truck that is coming the other way, called death and hell. Now, one final thing to point out from the Bible, the Bible regularly shows us that God is able to achieve his good purposes out of the evil and the suffering in this world. Uh, In Genesis, towards the end of Genesis, the book of Genesis, we come across the story of Joseph, who is the youngest of his brothers. You may remember him as the prince of Egypt and his technicolour dream coat and, and whatnot. Um, but Joseph is sold by his brothers as a slave to Egypt for doing nothing but being a bit precocious. It was an evil thing that they did to him, no doubt. And while in Egypt, things got worse. He was maliciously accused and uh, falsely accused of rape because he refused to do the wrong thing. And he ends up in dungeon in a prison. And talk about injustice. But it was through this prison experience that, Je- uh, that Joseph eventually rose up to become second in charge of all of Egypt. And in this exalted pl- position, he puts into effect a plan that saves the whole of the known world from a severe famine that would hit for seven years. And ironically, his, se- his uh, 11 brothers are caught up in this salvation. Uh, and Joseph ends up rescuing them. And he says this to his worried brothers who think that he might be planning revenge on them. 
In Genesis 50, verses 20, he says, I think I've got this as well. Uh, he says to them at first, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought, he brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. God is able to bring about good from evil, even our own evil intentions and actions. Same intentions or the same event different radically different intentions the brothers intended it for evil god intended it for good we see that even in the case of jesus evil men put jesus to death and inflicted the worst injustice in human history and yet it was through this evil this thorough evil that god brought about the salvation of the world god is able to bring about good from evil remember that girl katie beers um, who I told you about earlier, who was abducted and abused when she was just nine years old. Um, a few years ago, she released a book about her life in which she had said that the kidnapping actually worked out for her good. She said that her childhood was a thousand times worse than anybody had ever realised. She was abused and neglected in a very unstable home. And she was taken in by a family friend, but was treated like a slave and sexually abused by her friend's husband. And after the abduction, authorities, just for her well-being, placed her in a foster home who lovingly raised her like their own daughter and she eventually succeeded in life and is now married with two kids. And in her words, her own words, she says this, the kidnapping saved me. If the kidnapping hadn't have happened, I don't even want to think about where I would be. But I would never have graduated high school. I would never have graduated college. I might not even be here living today with the road that my life was bound to go down. He's just an ordinary example in our world of good coming from evil. And during uh, the recent bushfires, numerous beach missions had to be evacuated, so their missions were actually cut short. Oh no, that means less evangelism taking place. But of all the reports I keep on hearing from people who've come back from mission is that they have said as a result that they have never had more opportunities to share the gospel with those communities that they went to and where the mission was cut short because of the bushfires. My wife's two nieces actually uh, texted us on the night uh, that they were evacuated to the wharf at Malakuta Beach. They were on that beach mission team. They were all evacuated to the wharf and eventually they were shipped uh, back home uh, through that naval vessel. But God answered our prayers for them uh, that night and the prayers of many um, when a miraculously a strong easterly wind, we're told, just before it hit where they were, uh, pushed the fire back against itself. Now, it could have been just a coincidence, couldn't it? But we know that God is able to do such things. But what is more interesting is the number of of Christians in that community and the beach mission team that said that there were more opportunities for the gospel that opened up as a result of those events than they had ever experienced before. And I hear of a local at the moment who is saying that uh, he continues to have wonderful conversations with all of the community about the events of that night. God is able to save and he knows how to bring about good even from evil. Now, to this, we add the promise of God to those who are Christians, that God is able to bring good from evil. The Bible actually never promises that Christians won't suffer. It actually promises that they will. So uh, uh, Acts 14.22, uh, 
uh, where Paul is warning the churches that are new, he says to them, we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. And there are plenty of other places um, that you can see that. But that's not the promise I actually have in mind, though. Uh, There is another promise that makes uh, the promise of hardship much more bearable and brings a warm comfort with it. And it's this promise, uh, Romans 8.28, which I hope you know well. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose uh, for them. By everything there, it actually means everything. And in the context of the chapter, it particularly means the sufferings and evil that men do and the injustices that we face in the world, because he goes on to list quite a number of them. Christians will suffer in many different ways, he says there. But God has a reason for that suffering. It's not purposeless or aimless. God intends it for our good. Now, exactly what that good is at that particular time that you're going through the suffering may not be easy to work out at the time. Often when you reflect upon it much later, you can see a number of good things that God has brought about through those things. But at the time of suffering, it's very hard uh, to see it. I mean, I can imagine Joseph sitting there in the dungeon, scratching his head, trying to work out what on earth is God doing? In this situation. But God did some amazing good through him. And our ultimate good is obviously that we make it to heaven. Nothing could be better than that. So, generally speaking, our sufferings in life is God's way of lovingly guiding us to heaven, making sure we don't get distracted by the things of this world or entrapped by our own sinfulness or the sinfulness of others. In Romans 8, Our good is that we become more and more like Jesus. That's what verses 29 and 30 go on to talk about. In Hebrews 12, God is disciplining us as his children, enabling us to mature as Christians. And through it all, God promises never to leave or forsake us. Hebrews 13, verse 15. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain, says this, God whispers to us in our pleasures, he speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Sometimes, you see, it's the only way that people listen. And when the danger is extreme, then the measures required to get a favourable outcome are necessarily extreme. And we're talking about heaven and hell, eternity compared to this heartbeat of suffering and pain. In comparison, if through a moment of pain I could ensure a wonderful future for my children, I tell you, I would take it in a heartbeat. But God uses hardships and suffering to lovingly guide us till we get to heaven. And pains and sufferings of life are God's wake-up call to us all, for Christians and non-Christians alike. In the very least, the bushfires remind us that we are so vulnerable that it's all going to fade away. You can't hold on to anything, not even your own life. For the Christian, it reminds us that we're not living for this world and therefore we shouldn't set our hope on the things of this world but on the world to come. The hardships of life are God's way of lovingly warning us to stay on the right track. As a Christian, when you ask 
God the question why, he might well say to you, well, because I'd rather, uh, I'd rather you or your loved ones not go to hell. I want you to be with me in the wonderful pain-free world that I am creating for you, that I'm making actually for both of us so that we can enjoy it forever. Now, if you're not yet a Christian, then it's a warning that time is running out. The clock is ticking. Tick, tick, tick. Twelve o'clock is approaching when judgment day is coming. And unless we repent, Jesus says, Jesus says, not me, we will perish. Not just death, but there will be hell to pay as judgment before God. And if you're not yet a Christian asking God why, then God might well say to you, because I'm trying to warn you. I've patiently been giving you many, many opportunities to come back to me. I tried to show you that I love you by sending my one and only son into the world, but you wouldn't even listen to that. So excuse me for shouting. Pay attention to the warning signs. A number of years ago, actually, on my honeymoon, I was um, wading through a river in far north Queensland that was about 25 metres wide to see if it was safe enough for us to take our newly hired four-wheel drive across uh, this river. About halfway through the river on the way back, I suddenly saw a sign. There was a picture of a crocodile and under it said, no swimming, exclamation mark. What do you do when you see such a sign and you've already gone halfway, you've already gone all the way across and halfway back? I got out of the river as quickly as I could. That's what I did. <laughs> it never occurred to me to think, hey, well, I've already crossed, haven't been taken by a crocodile yet. Obviously, no crocodiles here. Water's warm. I may as well enjoy it, go for a swim. Never even occurred to me. That would have been to be pushing my luck. The sufferings and tragedies of life are God's sirens screaming out to us, warning us, trying to rouse a deaf world. Pay attention to the warnings. Jesus said, unless you repent, you too will all perish. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we know that you are a God who speaks, that you have not left your creation in the dark, that you have spoken to us over and over again through the prophets and especially through our Lord Jesus. We thank you that even creation speaks of your majesty and your glory. It grieves us when we go through hard times and the sufferings of life. But we see in your word that even these are designed by you to speak a word to us, warning us of things to come, warning us to turn back to you, urging us to seek life in you. We pray for all of us that we would see your goodness even in the hardships of life and continue to trust you and seek after you. And we especially pray for those who have not yet done so, that they would turn to you 
in faith and repentance and find life in Jesus' name. We pray this. Amen.